So glad you're with us today. Rip, good to see you, man. Why don't you tell us something? Rip, give us a word. Come on, brother. I know you're never short of words. Just give us a welcome. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Rip is a pastor. He used to pastor this church, and he still is a pastor of this church. I greet you in the name above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I bring to you John 16, where Jesus said, Be of good cheer. Amen. I have overcome the world. You may have trials, and in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Amen. I pray all is well with you, and I pray for this church often. God bless you. (laughs) You're going to preach. I had Larry on your five-minute cycle. At five minutes, the microphone is going off, just so you know. (laughs) Leland is another pastor of this church. I I just feel I need to share this. I thank you, Pastor, for... But this is to build you up and to encourage you in worship and in your daily lives. The Lord was just really speaking this to my heart through the worship time. Is that many times we we chase miracles. We go, we, we want them. And that's not a bad thing. That's part of our faith is to to believe God for miracles. But our mistake oftentimes, I believe, is chasing them. We don't need to we don't have to chase them. Do you know the key to miracles? Very simple. Very simple. The word says that he is in the midst of the praises of his people. That's the word. That's the word. That's not me. That's not pastor uh, way. That, that, that's the word. Now, the word also says in his presence there is peace. There's healing. There's there's freedom. There's salvation. There all you you could go on and on and on. All inclusive of what God does. What God does. So in his presence, what does God say? What ushers in the presence of God? Well, the word says that he inhabits. What does inhabit? Means comes, dwells. <laughs> He's there in the midst of the praises of his people. So let's not chase the miracles. Let's create the atmosphere, and here's the key the atmosphere of miracles. Other words, praise, true praise, worship. The song spoke so well to me about the, you know, is Lord forgive us if we're just going through the motions, but true praise from the heart to an almighty God. (laughs) Almighty God. I know we all in this room, I feel sure, know who he is, and but sometimes we, we forget <laughs> who he truly is. But let's not chase the miracles. 
And it's not just when you come here. It can happen anywhere, on the golf course, at work. And I may have, I don't know if I share this with you, but some of the greatest times I've ever had with the Lord was not in church. I've had some good times in church too, don't get me wrong, but some of the times that, that stick in my memory is not in church. You know what it was? I was on the back of a 560 farm all on our farm when I was a teenager, and I'd be out there plowing in the field, and I'd find myself singing worship songs to the Lord and just praising Him, just driving along. We didn't, you know, some tractors had radios, ours didn't, so I made my own music. But I'd be out there just singing praises unto the Lord, and before you know it, truly, before I, I could... I literally, there was times I had to stop the tractor. My dad would have seen me. He thought I was crazy, I'm sure, or anybody else for that matter. I had to stop the tractor, get off, and I would run around the field. Just, I was so excited in the Lord and what he was doing in my heart. You know, it's not, don't chase the miracles. The miracle is the byproduct of the presence of God that's ushered in by the praise of a heart. Amen? Amen. Amen. And one other request. This is a request. If I could. This is, again, edification for the church. Not a, I'm, trying, I'm not trying to bring anything down because the presence has been so real this morning. But I'd ask you to pray for our pastor. Hmm. Would you do that? No, no, Nobody except the pastor, <laughs> knows what pastors go through. Day by day, oh, he just works an hour and a half a week or whatever the case may be, six, you know, five hours, whatever. Oh, no, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I know he's, I think all pastors have insomnia. I really do. <laughs> because their minds never, ever, ever mm. shut off. <laughs> you know why? Because the Lord is speaking to them. For one, the Lord's trying to, but He's also because He's thinking about you. True pastors, and I believe we have a true pastor, loves His people, and He's thinking about you. He's thinking about what you're going through. And that's a heavy load to carry. Not just what him and his family, his wife and his kids and his grandkids and carry, but what you carry. Guess what? He's carrying that too. So I just encourage you. I found myself this week thinking about Pastor Way. And I just prayed for him. Amen. And I encourage you to do that too. Especially if the Lord impresses upon you. <laughs> To pray for him. By all means, the Lord impresses you. You better pray for him, okay? But even if the Lord don't, just take a moment and say a prayer. Say, Lord, just encourage pastor. You know the benefit of that? When the pastor's encouraged, you're going to be blessed mm -hmm. even more because that's going to give him strength and encourage you. Amen. And, and pass the word. It's a good word. But God bless you. It's a good Thank word. You, Thank Pastor. you so much. I really appreciate that. Amen. Wow. Wow, that's uh, 
That's church. Thank you, Rip. Thank you, Leland. Leland is a retired pastor from Texas and is up here with his family for the summer. Then he's going to go be going back in October. But thank you for that. And I, I, both words are, were good. I'm in the presence. I'm telling you, when you're in the presence of God, things change, don't they? Things change. The, the, the pull of this earth grows dim when we're in the presence of the Lord. And to sit at his feet, it's just an amazing, amazing atmosphere. Father, I just come to you in Jesus' name, and now I ask you, Lord, that you anoint whatever we speak about today, that we do speak your heart. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for the power of your presence. Thank you for the miraculous of your presence. So good. So powerful and so meaningful that we just bow down before you today. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been speaking to Malachi. And uh, the word that we're getting today was meat. We are in the meat of the word today. Uh, We've introduced Malachi numerous times. Don't need to go back and reintroduce it every time that we speak about it, other than to say this, that God loves his people. He loves his people. What he wants from all of us, more than anything, like we talked about, is relationship with his people. That's you and me. Just like it was the Jewish people of Malachi's day. The relationship they have from Je- with Jesus comes through Jesus. It, it comes first through the forgiveness of our sins. We really can't have relationship with God until we have forgiveness. Until we're forgiven of our sins. That is the, that's the key. That's the moment. That's the catalyst of relationship is forgiveness of sins. And then after we live, then after we have that, we live in truth and honesty and holiness, which is really defined as total surrender. It's not a one foot in and one foot out relationship. Relationship with Jesus is both feet in. Both feet in, or dive into the swimming pool head first. Whatever, whatever way, whatever, whatever vision picture you need to have in your mind, relationship with Jesus is not a, a I'll try it and I'll see if it works for me mentality. Because if, you're th- if that's the mentality you have, you've just invited the enemy to come in and make sure it doesn't work. So relationship with God is a full in. I'm in no matter what, and I'm not turning back. It is a full commitment of ourselves, of our resources, of our emotions. And Malachi, unfortunately, saw the people falling away from that. Malachi saw how the people had lost their faith in God. They weren't having a very good year of crops. Time was tough in the day, and the people were starting to get nervous about giving God their best because they didn't have much left. The crops were failing. 
That's kind of setting the tone, setting the context. And so when they would bring their sacrifices, it was too easy for them to bring the blemished lamb or the one that wasn't that valuable to, to them because, because God, and God would clearly understand this because, God, we don't have much anymore. We don't have our crops anymore. We don't, and our animals, are, they're getting unhealthy. So I can't give you the best, God, because if I give you the best, then I'm going to lose my breeding stock. And I can't, you know, a, a wounded animal or a blemished animal probably won't breed a perfect animal again. So I can't give you my best. And so that's, that's kind of where they were going. And Malachi was saying, guys, you're missing the whole point of what God is about. And I would look at our tendencies today in our humanity, just like the humanity of the Jewish people of their day, was what we might have the same, the same struggle in our heart, in our life. We honor God with our lips and some of our service, yet there's that internal struggle of trusting God with my best. Really, God, can I really give you my best? So we're titling the message today, Should People Cheat God? That's the question that Malachi asked of his people. Should people cheat God? So let's jump in and let's find out what we should do. Malachi, open your Bible to Malachi chapter 3. Chapter 3, we're going to read verses 6 through 12. Malachi chapter 3. I am the Lord, and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? We'll come back to that comment in a minute. Verse 8. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. And I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. The only time God ever says put him to the test is right here. Recognize that God doesn't ever enable or allow us to test him other than this passage right here. It's the only time in Scripture where God says, go ahead, try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Amen. Father, I just pray for this word today. God, just give us the ability to understand what you're saying in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi is saying, it's only because of God's love and his covenant with his people that you even exist today. <laughs> I mean, many nations have been wiped out, but yet the Jewish nation is still the apple of God's eye, and it always will be. Just recognize that the Jewish nation will always be the apple of God's eye. 
Now, spiritually, we can be part of that, but we're not replacing it. We are not replacing the Jewish nation. We never will, but we can be part of it spiritually. We can be part of Abraham's descendants through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. He's saying that I haven't wiped you out. Your ancestors have been unfaithful to me. And now you actually are being unfaithful to me as well. But God's saying, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. He says, now return to me and I will return to you. You return to me and I'll return to you. That's what God's promises is. Like last week, we talked about Malachi and um, talking about the refining process. And God's refining process is intended to purify the people, not to throw them away. The, the, the refining process is just the opposite. It's a recovery process. It's a refining process. It's taking the raw materials and refining them to bring out the gold and the silver and the preciousness of that material and all the dross and all the waste would be burned up and put aside and that would be thrown away. But he is all about recovery and refining. That's the God that we serve. He's not out to throw you away. He's not angry with you. He loves you, and he wants to refine all the impurities out of you so that you can be holy and that you can have a right relationship with him because it's all he wants is relationship with us. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The gold and the silver is the result, and that's worth keeping. You are worth keeping. The raw elements are going to be burned up, but the gold and the silver are going to, are going to last forever. In fact, it's going to be so abundant, we're going to walk on it. <laughs> we're going to be walking on streets of gold. It's going to be like pavement under our feet. Amen. I can't wait for that day when we can see heaven and it's all of its beauty. And he looks at us and says, I was refining you so that you could walk on it. <laughs> I was refining you so that you could be holy and righteous, so that you could walk on the, what you would call precious today, I call asphalt. Because you are so special to me. I love that. And that's what Malachi is saying to the people. The Jewish people of his day are, are the raw elements in themselves, and without the redemption process of Jesus Christ, they are not worth keeping. But through Jesus, through Jesus, we're refined. The unfortunate thing is that people still were not getting it. They said, but you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? In the mind of the people, they were doing everything right. And they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. They didn't think that they were not honoring God with their blemished sacrifices. And isn't it interesting that most of the time, the person that's living a deceptive lifestyle is easy to spot a mile away, yet they don't see it for themselves. Think about that one for a minute. Let that sink in. How easy it is for us, for me, to live a deceived lifestyle and not see it. But somebody that recognizes me from a distance might see it, and they probably do see it. And if they bring any correction to me, if I'm wise, I'll listen to it. But most of the time, I rebuke them and I say, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm perfectly fine. We know that. And that was what was happening in the life of the Jewish people. 
and I don't want to go back and rehash everything we've already talked about in the first two chapters of Malachi, but they were, it was very obvious they were missing the mark by their not giving God the best, the blemished animals. And so it's not a surprise here to find them still responding with such a deceived mindset. So Malachi had no alternative but to answer them with a very blunt and straightforward response. And that's what we need. We don't need people to beat around the bush with us. We don't need people to send out signals that they're hoping that we read between the lines. No, we need bluntness and we need the love of God like Malachi gave to his people. He was blunt. And then he comes up with the question, should people cheat God? Hmm. Should people cheat God? Well, the obvious answer is, well, no. <laughs> of course not. But yet he goes on and says, but yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? Malachi goes in for the kill. You cheated me of the tithes and the offerings due to me. Now, let's talk about tithes and offerings for a minute. And, and I will say this is an area, this is an opportunity for, for us to really go off on a deep end here. There's been a lot of, I would say, misteaching here when it comes to this passage. So I am not out here to create a big offering today. By the way, our offering box is in the back, and you're welcome to put money into it, and that's something you should do because it's for your benefit, but that's not my point today. There's much we can learn about what it means to give to God and to what his reaction is, what and how we give it to him. See, God is serious about giving. But we need to really understand God's heart on this. Because if we don't, we can err quickly and get off in the weeds someplace with a name it, claim it, prosperity thinking message. And I'm not doing that today. I trust God for my provisions. And I trust God for miracles, but I'm not putting him in a box to say, God, because I've done this, you have to do this. God is sovereign, and he alone is sovereign, and I'm not. I just have to be obedient to his word and let, then let that work. Let his blessings flow naturally, but I'm not forcing it. I can't force it. If that's my mentality, I will tell you we've already missed the mark. Let's talk a little bit about Old Testament giving requirements. Let's talk about tithing and offering so we know what we're talking about. In the Old Testament, first of all, tithing is defined as one-tenth, one-tenth, ten percent of the first fruits is what God owns. He owns it all, but is requiring the first ten percent, not the last ten percent if it's left over. The first ten percent is the tithe. And that proves to God that he's first and of utmost priority. That's an outward proving that God is the giver, and we understand that, that God is the owner. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. Just making the case here of who is the owner. Psalms 50, verses 10 through 12, but I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. 
For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. So there's no question who is the owner of everything. God owns it. He created it, and by his words, he sustains it. Even knowing that God is the rightful owner, however, that God instills a giving model. So according to the Jewish law, after the 10% comes the offerings. Okay, the first 10% are God's. And then comes the offerings. There's a burnt offering, which was a bull or a ram or a male bird. And it was to be wholly consumed, perfect, without defect. And then there was the grain offering, which would be grain or baked bread with no yeast or no salt or no honey, along with the burnt offering. And then there was the fellowship offering, Again, would be any animal, but it had to be perfect, without defect, with a variety of breads. And then there was the sin offering, which would be a bull or a goat or a dove or a pigeon or a tenth of an epoch of fine flour, depending on the position of leadership or authority that that person had or their financial ability. And then there was the guilt offering which would be a ram or a lamb, again, without defect. So when you take all these tithes and all these offerings in place that were required of the Jewish law, it wasn't just 10%. It was more like 23 to 25 cent. God required a significant amount of giving from his people if they're going to be obedient. So I just want you to be comfortable that I'm not suggesting that we revert back to Old Testament law. <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm perfectly content not having to bring a bull or a ram to church. <laughs> uh, and I'm glad we don't have to. But the whole point of this is making this point is that it was obvious to, the, to Malachi of his day that the people were looking for workarounds. They weren't looking to give God what God required. They were trying to find ways to work around the system. They were intentionally disobeying. And yet, through these repeated acts of justification, they were finding themselves to be okay. That's the scary part. They knew they weren't living right. They knew God's requirements were perfect animals, perfect grain offerings. But here's the thing that really is scary in this is that even in knowing that God required perfection, they were becoming okay with bringing mediocrity, thinking that God was going to be okay with it. And there's a whole series of sermons that we could preach here from the, that very act of humanity, that we think God's okay with whatever I bring him. Hey, the church is having a garage sale. Let's bring the stuff I don't want. Let's use that as a dumping ground. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I, uh, quite often, you know, we have a little three-yard dumpster in our parking lot, and quite often it gets filled up with all kinds of stuff that's not ours. <laughs> and uh, so the other day I, I drove in, and uh, I'm not going to say the names. I'm just going to tell you the story because it was kind of funny. But I drove in, and there was a, a roll of carpeting right in front of the front door. 
And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, now are they not, they're not even putting it in a dumpster anymore. They're just bringing us their junk carpeting. And I'm thinking, what is wrong? And I'm, I'm t- it ruined my morning. I'm thinking, oh, seriously? And so then I remembered we have a security camera. I'm going to find out who did it. <laughs> so I went into my office, and I got on the security camera, and I'm looking, and sure enough, I saw the pickup, and I recognized the pickup. I said, oh, now I got him. So I called him. And I said, seriously? <laughs> seriously, you're bringing your junk? You're not, you're not even putting it in a dumpster. You're just laying in the front and you want, want, money, want me to take care of it? And what it was, it wasn't junk at all, actually. It was some carpeting that Hannah and Tyler were getting. And uh, it was from there. And so it was, well, I'll tell you the name. It was my cousin, Ron. <laughs> and, uh, and so I called Ron. I said, Ron, Seriously? You're bringing your junk? And then we laughed about it. And I said, you know, but I tell you, it really got me for a minute there because I really was thinking that I was taking, getting somebody's junk. So it was okay. Ron didn't do anything wrong, and, and we're okay. But yet that's the principle so many times that, that people will bring their, their junk and then say, God, bless it. <laughs> do your miracle there, God. Turn that one into wine, okay? But yet how guilty, though, are we seeing what God desires from us only determine in our own mind that it's too much for us to give. It's just too much. God, you're asking too much this time. So we look for our own work around, around God's plans. And here's the problem. Once we start to compromise, when do we stop? The slippery slope of compromise is slippery, very slippery. Once we start to compromise, how do we ever get a toehold in to stop it? And here's the thing with human nature, is that if we repeat it enough, we will sear the conscience. And all of a sudden, we don't feel it to be wrong anymore because I've done it so much that it just seems to be, I guess it's okay. So there, I don't feel it anymore. I used to feel it at the beginning. I felt, I felt my conscience burn me in the inside. And I felt bad about it, but yet I did it again, and I did it again. And the more I do it, the less I feel it until eventually I lose that consciousness. And so therefore I'm thinking, well, God must be okay with it now because I don't even feel bad about it anymore. That's how deception slips into the, into the life of believers. Deception just isn't in the life of the unbelievers. Deception can be just as much in the life of the believer if we're not careful. It's just one little thing at a time, and then it grows and it grows until we don't even know its name anymore. Yeah. And that's why the next passage I'm going to read to you is very true. Now, some people have read this passage and don't understand how this can happen. Because this, I would say, is one of the scariest passages in the Bible. Because it talks to you and me. It talks to the believer. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 21. It says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many, here's a word, not few, not few. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. If that doesn't scare you, it should. It scares me. And I'm not living in fear over this, by the way. I just want you to know that. But it is a verse that should make me think 
about what am I really doing for the Lord? What is my motivation? Why am I doing what I do? I'm a pastor, so it's my job to do some, certain things. But you know what? If it's just my job, then I'm losing my calling. And Leland, I really appreciate your request to pray for pastors today because I will be honest with you, I really need it. And I can tell when people are praying. And I thank you for your prayers because this is not the easiest time to be living for anybody, let alone a pastor of a Bible-believing church because we have great responsibilities to figure out how we walk through this maze of life and all the things that are happening politically right now. Where do we find God's plan through all of this? And so easily we could get distracted by it. And I could go down the political world and I could go down the, 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 I could go to either extreme. And I'm asking you to pray for me that I do not. Because I need your prayers. I need your counsel. I need you to talk to me. Share with me your heart because God can speak through you to me or to every other pastor. So go to your pastors. If you're listening to this, if you're not here, go to your pastors and talk to them. Share with them your heart. Pray with them. Pray for them. Perfect. Thank you. But the people of Malachi's day would not have seen this passage as applicable to them. If this, pa- this passage wasn't written then, <laughs> this is New Testament, they were Old Testament, so this passage wasn't even written to them. But if it was, they would look at it and just say, that doesn't apply to me, Malachi. Just like they're saying, well, how can we return to him when we haven't ever strayed away from him? You see how deceived they were? He says, for you are under a curse. Your whole generation, your whole nation has been cheating me. We don't like to hear these words. I get it. I don't like to hear those words, but a good prophet, a prophet of God, you know it's a prophet of God when he don't leave it there. If that was it, then that probably wouldn't be a prophet of God. But Malachi goes on to give the good news. There's always good news when it comes to hard word because God has a plan to get us out of the badness and into the goodness. So here's the good news. We've already read it. Verse 10, bring all the tithes in the storehouse so there may be enough food in my, in my temple. If you do, if you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord. So Malachi is saying, here, this is the way we return to the Lord. How do we return to the Lord? Here's what you do. You repent, and you give all that God requires, joyfully and willingly. So let me stop here and ask this very good question. If God does own everything, and if he is in charge of it all, then why did he create the requirement for men to have to give back to him. Why would God depend on our generosity and our faithfulness to accomplish the things that he wants to in this world? Because many things that happen in ministry require finances. Many things that happens requires the faithfulness of people. God uses people to win people. Sheep make sheep. Shepherds don't make sheep. People do. I'm sorry, people. I'm sorry, sheep make sheep. 
Sheeple make sheeple. <laughs> we'll talk about it later, Jack. Sheep make sheep. If pastors tried that, that wouldn't work. And I'm as much of a sheep as you are. I want you to know that. I'm not elevating the role of pastor above that because Christ is the great shepherd, right? Christ is the great shepherd. He's trusting me and you as his sheep to go into the world and to save the world. He is, uh, he's asking us to go in and to preach the gospel. The great commission is to go out and make disciples. That's our job. And he's entrusting it to you and me to do it. And part of it is our giving. Why would God do that? If God loves all people, if he would have the, no one that would suffer hell, why would he trust you and I then to be the agents of heaven for them? Because if you don't share, chances are that person may not hear. We have a part to do in this. We, we may not be the reaper, but we are the sower. And we are sowing good things, hopefully, through our actions, through our life, through our faithfulness, through our consistency. Or we could be showing discord and hypocrisy that could make that person say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. If that's what faith is, if that's what church is, I, based, based upon your life, I want nothing to do with it. We could be that model as well. God, help us to be the model of giving of ourself, not just our pocketbook but everything that we are so that we would only be that positive role model to the world. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 1 through verse 9. We're going to talk about godly giving and maybe answer the question why God entrusts men with the responsibility of being a giver. He says, now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with, a, with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. Verse 3, for I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did it more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. Verse 6, So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. Verse 8, I am not commanding you to do this. That's so important. We'll come back to that. I am not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for you, for he, for, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Boy, there is a gold mine here. Why God chooses us 
in the giving model that he's created. I love it. Paul says, I am not commanding you. You see, if it's a command, it loses some of the value of the test. You know, there's some grayness in the Word of God that is confusing to me sometimes. Because that area of gray says you can or you don't have to necessarily. I mean, I don't think God is going to. This is not a salvation issue of your, if you're a tither or not. You're, not. you're not going to heaven because you were a tither. If you're getting to heaven, you're getting to heaven only because of the grace of Jesus Christ. But there's that grayness of God's word. He says, I'm not commanding you to do this. But yet I'm testing how genuine your love is. Wow. Think of the other areas of gray in God's word that really is only a test of your love. Not just for God, but for people. Because I don't want to be a stumbling block in any way that I can if I can help it to other people. Because what I do, I may have justification. I may have the freedoms to do it. But is it profitable for me to do it? Yeah, I may gain some immediate pleasures in the, in the process, but you know what? How many people are watching me that I might be leading astray because they don't really see my heart, they don't see the intent, they just see the action, and the action in itself can be damning for somebody else if they take it to an extreme. I may not take it to an extreme. I may have it controllable where I'm at, but they don't know that, so that if I'm living in any way that can be a stumbling block, I'm living in this gray area, and God is saying, I'm not commanding you, but I'm testing you. Is your love pure for me? And is your love pure for people? Because I don't want to do anything that would lead a little one astray. Think about that, grandparent. You've got grandchildren watching. So this message today is not that you need to give more to get more from God. That's not what I'm saying. Many times this passage is taken that way. Many times that it's, it's, this is used to create a, a guilt for tithing. And I believe in tithing. I, I believe in it 100%. I do it. And I go over and above with offerings. I do it because that's my privilege. But I don't do it as a means to get more out of God. <laughs> because I'm smart enough to know that God knows my heart. <laughs> I can't fool God. I can't buffalo him. I can't pull one over on him, right? So if I'm going to give, I'm going to give joyfully and willingly because it's my privilege to do so, not in a way to manipulate God to say, God, now you have to give me more. Because once I start doing that, do you think God's going to play my game? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think, he's going to, I don't think he has to play my game, nor yours. I just think he's looking for the obedient heart, Right? I think God is testing us in our giving in order that he can do what he so much, so much desires wants to do. He wants to give us back. God wants you to be blessed. I'm, a, I'm, I'm 100% aware of that. I just want to know, know define blessings. 
I think we have to define blessings. I think we can get bent. I think we can have a misunderstanding of what a blessing is. Because a blessing can become a curse if I don't know how to handle that blessing. Ask somebody that has a lot of money and find out how easy it is for them to trust God in their life when they have a lot of money. I mean, how often does the money become the idol? How quickly does the desires that we have all of a sudden overtake our needs and all of a sudden we're confused and now all of a sudden we feel like we have to Spend more time taking care of the things we have. My dad would say it quite a bit, and my dad was relatively successful for those that knew my dad. Um, But my dad would often say, who owns who? Who owns who? He had a boat, nice boat, twin diesels. And I can remember him with his head in the bowels of that diesel with that smelly oil diesel, and he would get up with it trying to take a breath. He would say, who owns who? (laughs) Who owns this boat? Who owns me? I'm the one servicing the boat. It's like a dog. The dog eats and he poops. Then who cleans it up? Yeah. You do. (laughs) Who won't who? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm not against dogs. We had one. So God is testing us. And, And I think that when we can see God's testing to be this way, it's a totally different purpose for God forgiving at this point. It's not about how much God can get out of me. It's about how much can I give him so that I can honor him and prove my love for him. The last verse we just read, read it with me. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that by his poverty, we could, he could make you rich. That is a definition of riches. How did Jesus become poor? Well, what did Jesus do? He left heaven. Do you think he was rich in heaven? Do you think that we can even begin to measure heaven's richness by the, what we know of, by what we trade with down here called dollars? Do you think dollars can even begin to equate to anything of heaven's richness? I don't think so. But yet Jesus was willing to give up all of the glories and all the riches in heaven to come down here to take on the form of man, to become poor, to live in poverty in relation to heaven's riches so that we could become rich. That's the kind of riches I'll trade for. If Christ's trading heavenly riches for earthly poverty equates to our trading earthly riches for heavenly riches, I'll take it. I'm in for that. I'm, I'm in for it. And I don't think that's greedy to say that because the way that we prove our heavenly riches on earth is by giving of ourself into poverty here. And I'm not taking a vow of poverty. I'm not saying that. But it's how I treasure these things here will determine how much of a richness they will give to me there. Matthew chapter 6, 19 and 21. I'm going to skip that commentary. Matthew 6, 19. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moth and, and, and rust eat them. Hey, let me start over. Don't store up treasures here on earth 
where moths and eat them and rusts destroy them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the kicker. Wherever your, your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. The most important aspect of this is your heart. Where's your heart? Your heart follows your treasures. Where are your treasures? If they're on earth, then your heart's on earth. If your treasures are in heaven, where's your heart? Now, I'm not saying things of earth aren't good. And I'm not saying that we have to give up all the good things we have. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that we have to be very careful that we don't let our identity come in what we have rather than who we are in Christ. Our identity is in Christ no matter what I have. See, the temporary successes or setbacks of this world can have a real impact on us if we're not careful. There is a, there's two words that are very important here, needs and wants. And how often do we confuse our needs and our wants? How often do we confuse them and say, oh, I really need that, when in reality it's just a, a want? I, I really don't need that. I don't need that new thing, whatever it is. You name it. You know what your heart is. I don't really need it. I want it. I would desire it. I would enjoy it. But I really don't need it. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have wants. I don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I really am not going down that path. I just want to make sure that we understand the difference. Because as soon as I start making my wants, my needs... I'm going to be disappointed by God because God doesn't, he never promised me that he would give me my wants. He promised that he would give me my needs. He promised that he would never allow me to lose the needs, but I may lose lots of wants. And if I think a want becomes a need, then I'm going to be disappointed in God because I'm going to say, God, you're not faithful because you're not giving me what I want. And God's saying, oh, Mike, would you stop it? Would you just stop it? And would you just look at your life? And I'm giving you all the needs. I'm giving you everything you need. Would you just be contented in that, please? I love the Philippians passage that Paul wrote. Philippians chapter 4. Beginning at verse 10. He says, How I praise the Lord that you are, con- that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. So Paul is talking to the Philippians, and they were going to give him a gift. And he said, I'm really thankful for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for giving to me. But I want you to know I don't need it. I mean, I, I don't, I, it's not a want. God is faithful to, to, to give me my needs and I'm so thankful. And so it's, he's, he's emphasizing the proper balance and understanding that we need to have between our needs and our wants. See, we need things. 
And it's okay to need things. I need your prayers. This church needs your giving. I need to depend on Christ. I need to let my life be driven by the Holy Spirit. Those aren't wants. Those are needs. It's okay to need things. It's okay to say, God, I need you more than ever, more than yesterday. I need you. It's okay. It's okay to accept help from people. Our pride steps up most of the time and says, no, I don't need your help. Yeah, I do need your help. Yeah, I do need your prayers. It's okay. I need to learn to be content with godly things. Jackie, would you come, please? I need to learn to be content. Paul goes on in this passage, and he finishes it up in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And then verse 19 is the kicker. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. So do people cheat God? If you cheat God, you think you're going to get more from God? You're going to end up with less. You're going to end up losing it all. The way that we deal with God's promises is to say, God, I need you. And I'm willing to lay it all down on the line for you today. I'm willing to sacrifice it all because I need you. And when we say that, when we say, I need you, Father, he says, that's what I was waiting to hear. Now I can bless you because it's not about you taking care of yourself. It's about you trusting me with your needs. Are you trusting God today? Are you trusting him today? Can I encourage you to trust him a little bit more? A little bit more with your needs and your wants? I trust this message will help us think and and rethink the way we think about stewardship. Everything I have is a gift from God, and I'm just a steward of it. And one day I'm going to leave it all behind. It's going to be a rubble, and it's going to burn up, and all I'm going to have is this, relationships with you, relationship with the Father through Jesus, And all the things that I've laid ahead are going to be waiting for us there where rust and moth do not eat or destroy or or, are stolen. God is a very good protector of your rewards. Amen for that. Amen that he's guarding it very, very closely because he can't wait to share it with you. (laughs) He can't wait. He can't wait to share his rewards with you because you've been faithful here 
And he is so thankful. He's so excited about sharing your rewards because we've been faithful here. Let's pray. Father, you are so beautiful and you are so worthy and you are so magnificent. God, I just pray that you receive our our praises to you. And Lord, I just pray that we would be so concerned about honoring you today that really the things of this life would go strangely dim. Lord, not that they're not important, but they're just not that important anymore. It really is all about you, all about living our life so that we hear you say one day, well done, thou good and faithful. Well done. You did well. It's our heart's desire. It's our heart's prayer. Encourage us this week as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed. Be blessed. Be blessed. Amen.